Top stories in the news. Bronfman family refuses any comment on report that the kidnappers of the heir to the family fortune are demanding a $4.5 million ransom. Former Long Island man identified as the victim of a drug injection given in an Army test program 22 years ago. Outbreak of street violence in predominantly black section of Boston. This is Lester Smith reporting. Next news as it happens. Next scheduled news at 11 o'clock over WOR, Radio 710, The Talk of New York. And here's Gene Shepard. see here for those of you who are having uh, a problem. Oh, the man-woman problem is getting uh, very, very tense, as you're probably aware. Oh, very much so. It's everywhere now. And uh, you see ramifications on all four sides of the compass. Here's a little note here from Francavilla, Sicily. A mother of four children shot and killed her 67-year-old lover because he boasted that the baby she was expecting was his. Well, I mean... You don't want to know false claims like that. <laughs> you want to hear a little more about it? She also hit him with a ketchup bottle and then went home to tell her husband. Okay. <laughs> oh, I just thought you loud. You ought to know that the, that the, 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 it's a tangled web we weave, friends. They didn't say what the husband said. It's, uh, they really didn't say. Husbands don't count much in Italy. And here's here's another one. Uh, you would like to hear uh, how how the tangled web of uh, man woman relationships is developing. Do you ever read uh, the questions to the lovelorn type? Uh, uh, you know the Ann Landers type. Well, here's one. The Pittsburgh. You know Pittsburgh. You don't think of Pittsburgh as being filled with intrigue. Well, here's one to somebody named Meg. Is there someone named Meg who answers questions? 
Well, that's the Ann Landers of uh, Pittsburgh, of at least Pittsburgh, PA, right? It says, Dear Meg, I hope you print this for young readers. It's from a bitter and unhappy girl of 13 who's been deeply hurt. I'll never, never trust a man again. Matt, my boyfriend, is 16. We've been going together for two months. For some reason, his father never liked me. One day last month, out of the blue, he offered Mitch a deal. A nice new sports car, if he would stay away from me. So guess what Mitch chose. I haven't heard a word from him since he got behind the wheel. I will never trust men again. We're so much in love. How can men be so rotten and cruel? Well, Meg did not really answer this the way it should be answered. Friend, Suzanne, if you're listening, I have to tell you something, Suzanne. There's hardly a man alive today that can remember the girls he knew when he was 15 or 16. But every man alive today can remember every damn car he ever owned. He can not only remember the car he owned, he can tell you how much miles it got on the gas. He can tell you about the time the, the valves went bad. He can tell you about the time he fixed the transmission. He can tell... Oh. So you're going to have to face the truth of things, Suzanne. It isn't that men are bad. It's that their cars are so groovy. Would you please hit the button, please? Please, any one of them, please. That's it. And so tonight, ladies and gentlemen, we take this occasion to salute the realities of love. Which are not necessarily what one reads in Dr. Rubin. Please bring another. couldn't cut that. And, uh, not, not bad on the ukulele, but when it comes to the kazoo, well, she's all heart and no lip. 
Now, would you please hit the national button, national. I'm right. Jane, and this is a no-frills commercial. Just straight talk and good news. Yes, no-frills is back, which means that now you can fly national and save a big 35%. Fly me with no-frills. <laughs> she don't have no-frills. I can tell that straightforward girl. Starting September 3rd, you can fly National's no-frills fare to Miami, Fort Lauderdale for just 61 bananas. And don't come around with bananas, right? That's a euphemism for uh, uh, um, money. You remember what you used to have? That's a savings of $33. The number of no-frills seats is limited. So act fast. It's first come, first serve. It's dog eat dog. It's man against man, brother against brother. Uh, no frills is back. Call your travel agent or National Airlines. And it's Munchkin time. Oh, there they go again. I can hardly wait to see that. Can the Leonard Bernstein Hell Prince musical now at the Broadway Theater has been hailed by some critics as the musical of all time. But you know how critics are. They get excited. But uh, you might enjoy it. So get down there and see it. They have a shipwreck in it. You want to see that. Candide at the Broadway Theater is a show for young and old. And there are free peanuts for everybody. And Helmet Day next month. Wear a Candide helmet. has wings on it. Great. A lot of cockroaches. Water bugs, if you prefer. What are these water bugs? A water bug has no relationship to a cockroach. Cocky. Nothing writer. It is... Cockroaches or water bugs, one or the other. But it says cockroaches or water bugs, if you prefer, have survived for thousands of years. Now, that is true. That we will not argue with. With no, So is man, by the way, the cockroach of the universe. With no natural enemies and the instinct for hiding in dark, inaccessible places, they're still with us and still hiding. Ha-ha, there's good news, though. For those of you plagued with roaches or other crawling insects that lurk in places unreachable with conventional aerosols or sprays, it's called... The hand grenade. No, blackjack. Uh, it's called... What's the matter? You're looking confused. Am I Am I reading this too emotionally for both of you in there? You Can you see these terrible cockroaches hiding in inaccessible places? All right, you get after them with the blackjack ant and roach killer. Uh, the blackjack fogger indoor generates a fine mist that penetrates behind baseboards and under your coffee table. And uh, behind a sink and under the plumbing and in your shoes and everything. And it kills roaches where they hide and breed and have all that fun doing it in the dark. The effectiveness of blackjack indoor fogger is assured by the Safeguard Chemical Corporation, manufacturers of over 40,000 household products, including the new transistorized decorator color shaded uh, electric light bulb cleaner. Hit it, please. Just about every football team, including the Don't Jets, you know has about a bread and butter transistorized electric light bulb cleaner. It can always depend on game after game after game. You know there's a bread and butter player for your car, too? What's Dependable this? Chevron Custom 1040 oh, Motor Oil. A motor oil made by Chevron experts to deliver the best protection to your engine mile after mile after mile. Fall, winter, spring, summer, Chevron Custom 1040, the all-season motor oil, is designed to perform even in the toughest driving conditions you'll most likely encounter in this area. Why not drive into your local Chevron service station sometime soon and ask for Chevron Custom 1040 oil? Why not change to Chevron Custom 1040, the dependable bread-and-butter motor oil? Chevron Custom 1040 Motor Oil at your local Chevron station. And if you listen to the Jets broadcast this weekend, maybe you'll spot the bread-and-butter ball players.
What does he mean by that? Is that next to the ham and eggers, Marty, huh? You know what a ham and egger is, don't you? It's a mediocre ball player. Well, I suppose a bread and butter ball player. Well, that's, uh, you know, we can get into that. Well, that's it for tonight, sport fans. Which high-potency vitamin do physicians and pharmacists recommend most? Theragran and Theragran M with minerals by Squibb. The name Squibb on the label means that you have no doubt about the honor or integrity of the maker. And right now, you can take advantage of a great special offer. Buy 100 Theragran or Theragran M tablets at the regular price and get 30 extra tablets at no extra cost. 30 extra when you buy 100. That's a month's supply for one person. But the offer's limited. Get your Theragran by Squibb now. It's the brand physicians and pharmacists recommend most for mixed vitamin deficiencies. It's available at Two Guys Pharmacy, 175 Passaic Avenue, Kearney, New Jersey, Crider Pharmacy, 732 154th Street, Whitestone, New York, Talejos Pharmacy, 1959 Oak Tree Road, Edison, New Jersey. And don't forget to tune in to this weekend's Jet football game, sponsored in part by your local Squib Theragran pharmacist. You must get lost a lot in Whitestone, New York, with that rotten numbering system they got there. But, <laughs> oh, uh, speaking of the lost, this is WOR, the home of the damned. And uh, we will continue uh, to fight against the inevitable here. As uh, what, what is the inevitable? Who the hell knows? That's what makes it inevitable. Uh, by the way, uh, we have to uh, have another thing. Speaking of the battle between men and women here. Battle between men and women. Yes, yes, uh, yes. I see a state which is very close to us has uh, had a big hassle. The state turned out a commemorative postal stamp canceller. You know, the kind that says, uh, watch the Tonight Show. You know, it comes out. Borrow $300 on your signature only. The whoopee loan company, you get these things. Well, they turned out a commemorative uh, thing there, a stamp cancellation and it was celebrating dogs. You know, you know, oh, well, let's salute the dogs. Why not? We've had salutes to everything else on the stamps. Why not dogs? Why not the cockroach? Who knows? Anyway, they salute dogs. And uh, so, symbolically, they had a fire hydrant on it. And that was okay for about three days. And then immediately, 4,000 women livers descended and said they are only saluting male dogs. At which point... <laughs> All right. <laughs> Well, I don't know, then. There's only... Well, I don't want to get into that, friends. We're getting very complicated here. And uh, I don't like to tread upon... Uh, and of course, you often do tread upon... But that, that, again, is something else. I'm not going to be anti-dog here in front of all of you. You remember my organization, Splat, don't you? Well, we had the proper symbol. Don't you remember our famous, uh, our famous slogan? Yeah. Kick a squatting dog in the behind today. It was our slogan. You know what he was doing there when he was squatting. He wasn't just thinking. Okay. All right, now let's see. Uh, what else do we have here? We have, uh, did we do general tire? Oh, for heaven's sakes. We have, uh, we have uh, started the class today without the Pledge of Allegiance. Please, put it on. There it goes. I don't know how we could even do that. I'm sorry, Alger Hiss. All right, bring it up there. Someday, someday you'll, you'll own. own. I said someday you'll own. You hear me again? Yeah. Oh, sooner or later, you'll own the general. Oh, that's such a heartwarming tune. General Tire does not claim that its tire experts have all the answers. I mean, you know, if you're having trouble with your girl, don't go down there. They, they may give you a little advice. 
I mean, you remember the kid that got the car? Well, uh, that's another story. He's a new General Tire buyer now. <laughs> well, but anyway, go down to General Tires if you're having tire problems. They'll tell you all about tires and what kind of tires you need for your own driving. You know, like like you drive, hitting the curb and bouncing over fire hydrants and stuff like that. You have a special tire for that. So get down and see them and sing it out. Your own General. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's General, friends. Sooner or later, your own General. Pro soccer joined the mad rush for America's sports dollar in the 60s. It almost died right there. Today, the sport is alive and kicking, and the current issue of TV Guide magazine explains why television is taking a second look at soccer. In the same issue, TV Guide examines a new way of watching television called video discs. The record goes round and round, and the sound and pictures come out on your TV set. Don't miss this first-hand report on what you can expect and when. This week, TV Guide's cover story focuses on Bobby Troop. In an age when songs were mellow, easy to whistle, and the lyrics rhymed, his songs were on top of the hit parade. Now he's a music man caught in a medical role on Emergency. Bobby Troop, a 1940s songwriter adrift in the 1970s, featured in TV Guide, America's biggest-selling magazine. On sale everywhere. Gotta have my liberation from my discombobulation Cause half my life is wasted drying hair Well, I'm hung up with these fears That I'm wet behind the ears I don't need this aggravation drying hair There's one name in hair dryers that can give you both satisfaction. Chick. For the girls, the Lady Chick Speed Styler. You get combs, brushes, styling mist, and it's fast. For you guys, the Samson Styler. Super air power for fast styling and drying. The Chick Samson for man-sized power. Chick makes them both. For both of them. Let's get our heads together. Let's try our heads prepared. With the Lady Chick Speed Styler and the Samson. Fly Aeromexico, the airline of Mexico to Mexico soon. Aeromexico, the airline that flies to three times as many destinations to Mexico and more tourists to and within Mexico than any other airline is ready when you are. We fly from more international gateways to Mexico than any other airline and serve three continents. To the world's most popular travel destination, Mexico. And we offer over a thousand Aeromexico quality approved tours to Mexico. More than I learned that anyone else. <laughs> so call your travel agent and fly with the airline of Mexico, Aeromexico, soon. Oh, yeah, I'll tell you, this show is better on, on television by far than it is on radio. Agree? I'm getting more laughs from my pipe blowing up here than I ever get with my stuff. Uh, Mexico. Mm-hmm. Hey, you know, speaking of, uh, hey, what? Uh, I, I got something very special to do here tonight. Okay. Uh, this is August, and uh, it's August uh, 1970. Quick, what's the year? Right, you're correct again. 
It's August 1974, and, uh... <laughs> We're not pleased, uh, Mr. Shepherd. He shouldn't give that silly information on the radio. Children are listening to him. Yes, honey, I know, and you're one of them. However, uh, getting back to uh, uh, the, the date and the time, it is August 1975, which means that it is precisely 30 years after a great historical event. And it was historical, as historical as any event, probably, uh, possibly since uh, mm, the ending of the Hundred Years' War. Really, that was historical, of course. Uh, the the date uh, of August uh, 1975 is, a, is precisely 30 years after the end of World War II. The absolute total end. It was over. And you know, we uh, people people don't think much of history, except in the sense of history with little flowers around it, and uh, you know, with uh, with uh, woodcuts and uh, elderly gentlemen with what white mutton chop uh, sideburns, and uh, you know, history is an official thing, and hardly anybody thinks of history as part of our century. We think of history as say U.S. Grant. <laughs> That's history. Uh, the, all the other stuff is like uh, current events or news or something. I don't think of history. But history is history, whether you like it or not. It's history. And wouldn't you love to have heard a, uh, a report, an, uh, you know, an eyewitness walking around Yardbird soldier's report of the surrender at Appomattox. And he's standing there in the crowd, you know, with his uh, canteen. That would really be fascinating, wouldn't it? Because, you know, later on, all these generals and that write official memoirs, but they don't have much to do with the blood and, uh, feel and the, uh, the atmosphere of the event. They'll say, and then, uh, uh, General Lee advanced to my headquarters, uh, preceded by his two aides, you know, <laughs> and uh, they don't say it was a hot day and we're all standing around scratching and I had a couple of drinks in the morning and I had a terrible head, and, which was probably true, Grant, but, uh, Nevertheless, uh, that's never reported, and yet that's really the way it is. I have a fascinating letter. I want you to listen to it now. That's about August 1945 from a listener, and he wrote it to me because of this date. He just wrote this letter. It's a great letter. Listen to this. He starts right out. Dear Shepard, in August 1945, the 3rd Airdrome Squadron. This is a genuine report. This is not fiction. It's a report of a man who was there. In fact, he sent me a sheaf of fantastic photographs, which I'll show you later, Brenda. Uh, in August 1945, the 3rd Airdrome Squadron was summering on the island of, I of Aishima. Aishima, which is one of the out-Jap islands, the Japanese islands that they took just before the surrender. Aishima, it's uh, spelled I-E, Aishima, where the camp recreational director had us all engaged in the fun activity of making napalm. Long rows of gasoline drums were filled through a biggish funnel with what looked like fluffy rice krispies. Then a pipe was introduced into the mixture, which bubbled compressed air throughout until it turned to jello. This was then pumped out into wing and belly tanks through a gas engine putt-putt, which occasionally belched a flashing backfire. No smoking, though, although we feckless G.I.s would sneak a butt, holding it at arm's length, while bubbling away with the other. 
Ernie Pyle was killed on this island just a few weeks earlier. Although not this way. He was killed by a sniper. You've heard of Ernie Pyle. So you know where E.I. Shima is. Nightly, the frustrated Japanese kamikazes, unable to dump on the fleet in nearby Naha, Okinawa, because of flak thick enough to walk on, would dump on us on their way home. In other words, dump on means that they would come diving right down into the camp and hit the camp. You never hear of that side of kamikazes. You always hear of kamikazes going after a ship. But the kamikazes who couldn't get to the ships, what did they do? Well, rather than just uh, ditch in the sea, because they only had enough gas to go one way, by the way. What did they do? They would turn around and they would go to, go to the islands there and they would dive on the camp and try to kill whatever they could get, you see. Maybe hit the headquarters. Anyway, he says, uh, they would dump on their way home in our camp. Then Hiroshima and Nagasaki disappeared. And an eerie silence descended on the following moonlit nights. He's talking about his island. This was before the surrender, you see. The Japanese, if you don't know the historical sequence, were bombed uh, on, on two successive nights, or two successive attacks, on the first uh, uh, Hiroshima and then Nagasaki. Most people don't talk much about Nagasaki. They was talking about Hiroshima. There were two dropped. And then there was a period of about ten days or so uh, where the Japanese were in total confusion and there was one group of them wanted to surrender and another group wanted to fight on, by the way, till, till they were all killed, including all the civilians. And finally the same group took over and uh, they, they submitted the surrender. And it was a great historical moment, by the way, which uh, should be reported. And that was the first time that the Japanese in all the history of the Japanese country had ever actually heard the voice of their emperor. The emperor never spoke directly uh, to uh, commoners or you know ordinary people, even in his cabinet meetings. The, the emperor rarely ever, only on historical occasions, actually said something to the cabinet. They would make a report and he would sit on a high throne over them. And he made a, a, a taped broadcast to the entire nation and the Japanese were shocked more by hearing their emperor than they were by actually the announcement of surrender. It was an unbelievable thing to do. And uh, so anyway, they decided they were going to surrender. But in the meantime, he, his little group is on the island of, of Aishima. And there's an eerie silence, meaning that there were no attacks. That's the eerie silence. On the moonlight nights when the planes had been hitting him, now it's silent. One day... The island began to fill with planes, Air Force, Navy, Marine, and whatnot, and the word got out that the Japanese were due to arrive at our happy home in a peace plane. Santa was no more eagerly awaited ever, and when it arrived, it came into the sky, and we all saw it white-painted with green crosses. This was a Japanese plane flying in to show that it wasn't an enemy. It was painted white with big green crosses on it. A topsy, I believe. See, we had code names for all the Japanese airplanes, Zeke, Frank, uh, various types. And this was a Topsy, which was a carbon copy of our old DC-3. The sky was black with our planes that circled around the Topsy as it came into the pattern to land. This was the first plane arriving. Imagine what a fantastic moment that must have been. While the staging revetments were packed with others, in other words, they parked all planes along the border of the field there, this was carefully staged to let them know that the jig was up. Really had the, the, the goods here. The peace team landed. And here was our witness. He was watching it. 
They took a quick look. They stood at the foot of the runway, took a quick look around, and then ducked back into Topsy. They quickly regassed, and they took off. At this point, heavily escorted by fighter planes to Clark Field, Manila. Then, our squadron was alerted to get the first airdrome going on the homeland of Japan. In other words, they went before the first planes landed there to get an airdrome going. You see, his squadron was alerted, which history had destined us, reluctant and nervous as we were, <laughs> to be the first to go into the enemy country. We all thought that we should have started in a smaller way, but wiser heads in the top echelons had pronounced the word go. Around August the 24th, we were pushed into C-46s with all of our aerodrome gear lashed to the floorboards. See, this is an aerodrome operating company. This is not an Air Force company. It's a company that operates an airfield. You understand? They set up the controls and they set up the electronics and they get the runways ready and everything else. All our equipment was lashed to the floor of C-46s, a big transport plane. We took off, four or five of us to a plane with all of our equipment, with a totally jumpy air cruise. The weather turned typhoonish, and our plane was badly buffeted, giving our pilot the plausible excuse of turning back to Okinawa. And eventually, almost the entire squadron turned back because of the weather. Two planes were lost, including one with our field kitchen equipment, and our, our Mexican mess sergeant, the former, being keenly missed forever afterwards. He was the best cook in the Army. Early next morning, though... Again, we left Okinawa, this time forever. And hours later, my first sight of Mount Fiji queased my stomach, as it were. Remember, they're going into an enemy country. Isn't that an interesting report? We landed at Atsugi Airdrome, which was a naval kamikaze base outside of Yokohama. Incidentally, most people don't know that the kamikazes were all naval aircraft. This was a naval thing, and not a, a, a Japanese Army Air Force maneuver, but it was a naval maneuver. Uh, the Navy fought uh, a very different way than the Army did in, in World War II. The Japanese Navy and the Army were two different groups. Anyway, the, the Kamikaze uh, airfield was Atsugi Airdrome. was outside of Yokohama, where the entire Japanese Army, fully armed and with anti-aircraft pits manned, awaited us as we circled the field. We descended warily, finally, from the plane, while a detachment of Japanese sailors led us to their barracks. Their officer bowed us through the front door while scores of startled Jap sailors piled out of the rear door. <laughs> they didn't know what, what's, what's happening here. Consternation on all sides until another officer bowed unsmilingly and left two cases of beer on the floor. A quick swig later, we were at work. Ops and the tower went to us, and the invasion was on. We kept the Japanese weathermen, though, because they knew the score of the local weather. At first, 100-octane gas was flown in by trickles, mostly, because Japanese gas simply was no good for our planes. Then their thin concrete strip began to break up under our C-54s. They didn't have heavy aircraft like that in the Japanese Air Force. And uh, work was started on new deep stri uh, strips. Planes landed day and night, and gradually new guys took over which gave us more free time to drink and explore what had been the enemy country around us. A gas pipeline was set up in almost no time at all from tankers that are anchored off Yokohama Harbor, and things were humming merrily. A couple of days later, the 11th Airborne Division landed, all the previous troops being service personnel 
and armed to the teeth, nervously fanned out, taking positions all over the field while we stood by, hands in pockets, making sarcastic comments. MacArthur's C-54 landed, and I stood next to the ops headquarters and watched him get out of the plane with the great man himself in evidence, green sunglasses and uh, scrambled eggs. You know, scrambled eggs is the decoration on the hat and all. On his way to Tokyo Bay for the final formalities. This is before the surrender, you see, before it was signed. Cameras ground, flashbulbs popped. While we were told to get the hell out of the way, although we've been running this turkey for days now, one of my things that I did was to light up the candle nightly. It's a quote mark. A Japanese anti-aircraft searchlight. I was given the job of lighting it nightly, which pointed straight up in the air as a marker for incoming traffic. This curious device was lit by peering through a smoked glass peephole on the side, cranking two fat carbon rods closer and closer until they ignited. A sizzling roar resulted, and it made me nervous since I always expected it to blow up and blow up on the decrepit truck that it was mounted on. Well, part of the truce agreement was that they would provide vehicles for our use. Remember, they were there before their equipment even arrived. A battered collection of pre-war American cars were lined up for us. I guess they thought we'd feel more at home with them. Anyway, they were right, and three of us grabbed a 37 Chevy sedan, a welcome change from our jungle-warm Jeep thumpers. Deep tunnels were dug all about 60 feet down around the area where we were. The electric lit where the Japanese had gone during air raids and filled with all kinds of great stuff, food, weapons, machine shops, generating plants, and best of all, a cache of stone-jugged vodka-type drink. A case of Luger-type automatics disappeared fast. The ACAC gun breaches were thermite bombed. They went on and destroyed all the ACAC, as well as piles of Arisaka 25-caliber sniper rifles, which we found underground. Arisaka is the Japanese standard rifle of World War II, the 25-caliber rifle. was an extremely accurate rifle, by the way. A longer barrel than the Allied rifles, but extremely accurate. Getting a day off, listen to this picture, it's a fascinating picture. Getting a day off, three of us took the Chevy into Tokyo. Leaving the car at a curb, we descended on impulse into a subway station. This is before the surrender has been signed, remember. A train rumbled in, and we got on. A mistake. The car was almost blacked out with two dim light bulbs at each end and packed to the gunnels with Japanese civilians. Dead silence. The train gathered speed, and we were riveted by hundreds of eyes, just gleaming at us in the gloom. Jammed in, there was no escape. A small, beady-eyed citizen was pushed right up against my shirt buttons, resting his teeth on the top one, and never, at one moment, took his eyes off me. I gazed unconcernedly at the fly-specked ceiling, praying for the train to stop. That accursed train was an express and flew by station after station after station. Visions of gleaming knives flashed before my eyes. And then, thank God, it stopped at Asakusa Station. An American team evacuating GI prisoners was there and gave us a lift back to Atsugi. I never saw the Chevy again. Considering that we had recently burnt their city to matchsticks, and there's always some sore loser in the crowd, we got off easy, I guess. I think a ride today on the BMT is a lot hairier. And he says, P.S., law-abiding as the Japanese are, 
I'll bet that 37 Chevy is still standing at the curb, plastered with Japanese parking tickets. <laughs> isn't, that a, isn't that a vivid uh, description of it? Now, wait a minute. Here's the picture he sent me, which is even more fantastic. It's a picture of a collection of Jap- Japanese Zeros and Hals. These are uh, Japanese uh, combat aircraft Hals. There's some Oscars in there, some Zeeks. There's a whole field of them, and here he is with his friend standing next to this Japanese plane, and they're holding up a Japanese flag. Uh, it's uh, you know with the rising sun, the big uh, the big uh, round uh, orb on it, and they're holding it up. And on the back, he says, "Me and my buddy scavenging for kamikaze flags." Remember, they were at a kamikaze airport, scavenging for kamikaze flags under the seats of wrecked planes. In other words, the, all the pilots that flew as a kamikaze pilot carried a flag folded up under the seat of his plane that he was dying for the flag and the emperor. See, the flag represented the emperor. It says, me and my buddy scavenging for kamikaze flags under the seats of wrecked planes at Atsugi Airdrome. We sold dozens to green occupation troops in August of 1945 and are holding up one of the flags. Now, that's history. Uh, in fact, you know that this is... Uh, I've read many accounts of this, and uh, a friend of mine, I, I, a guy that I met in a radio station one time along the way, had a very eerie account uh, of that same moment. He, too, was one of the very first people on, uh, on Japanese soil. But he was flown in with a small group of guys because he happened to be a radio expert. In fact, he, he was involved in radio broadcasting for many years before he went in the Army. And so he was an expert uh, in broadcasting. And he was on a special team that was trained. He spent the entire Japanese war... Uh, studying the techniques of Japanese propaganda radio. In other words, uh, who was the great uh, famous lady that did the Japanese propaganda? That's right, Tokyo Rose. And he was considered one of the uh, U.S. Army's prime experts on Tokyo Rose because he had he'd, uh, worked with all her tapes and and uh, analyzed everything. He knew what kind of equipment, and it was, he was an expert on Tokyo Rose. And so when, uh, when the war was over and immediately it was done, they took a, this small team of guys and they flew them right to the heart of Tokyo in a special aircraft, and they were the first ones in Radio Tokyo, where she broadcast from. And there it was, all sitting there. And they found thousands of records, the records that she had been playing, all the famous... Glenn Miller records and Benny Goodman records they were playing to, for their propaganda all with Japanese labels and, and uh, Japanese uh, uh, code signs and so on on them and they got hundreds and hundreds of uh, discs and transcriptions and, and he was the first guy in Radio Tokyo along with his crew and uh, he, uh, he was in the group of people who finally uh, were involved in, in getting Tokyo Rose you know she was later tried you know she just got a, an MA degree recently here in the States did you know that? That's true. Uh, I believe it was an M.A. or a doctorate. I'm not sure. Uh, but uh, Tokyo Rose was uh, was she was a, a American educated, you know. And so they uh, he was involved in the capture of her. But the point is that he they put the station back on the air. His job was as the programmer. Uh, he dealt with the programming, you see. And there was one of the guys was an engineer, and they got the station back on the air, and they began to broadcast to the. Japanese people, you know, saying that uh, no one was going to get hurt. It's going to be 
It's going to be uh, just just cool. It's going to be all right now. And uh, he was one of the first guys to get this station back going and running and on the air. It was a fascinating story. And he he uh, he had at home among uh, among his curious war souvenirs. He had uh, a whole collection of Tokyo Rose's actual records. <laughs> now, how's that for a curious, uh, uh, really uh, spectacular uh, uh, set of souvenirs? And he had Tokyo Rose's records, and he had a he had some of the uh, the log books that they signed. You know, to- but they kept logs like we keep radio station logs. And he had Tokyo Rose logs. You know, whenever she made a PSA, which was to tell you, "Oh, Yankee, give up." You know, and it would be logs as a PSA, I guess. And so uh, <laughs> he, he said. Uh, he had all his stuff, and, and, and among other things, uh, he, he went into uh, he went into the program director's office. There was an actual program director. There was a Japanese broadcaster, and uh, he went into the program director's office, and the uh, program director helped him. And he and the program, because he knew the station, of course, so he and the program director got together, and they they uh, working on on getting the station back on the air. And so, as a symbol of his gratitude and and uh, et cetera. The, he gave to the Japanese uh, program director. He gave him a souvenir of uh, one of the uh, his his own stuff. He gave him a I think a, a, a canteen. This guy was a soldier. Remember? He gave him a canteen or gave him a, uh, one of the pieces of GI equipment. At which point the Japanese uh, program directors ah you know you very you know they're they're very polite to each other. And so he went into the studio and he goes through a couple of cabinets and he came back out with uh, Tokyo Rose's favorite microphone, the one that Tokyo Rose used, and they gave it to my friend, and he has the the condenser microphone that was used by Tokyo Rose. How is that for a piece of tremendous trivia? At which point, he t- to authenticate it, he got uh, not only a letter from the, you know, on the, on the Imperial Japanese uh, Army stationery, a letter from the uh, the commander of the station that this was so, this really was this, but it was also signed by a note by Tokyo Rose <laughs> to the effect, yes, this was my microphone. It was very good. Had a lot of highs and, and uh, uh, no problem with bassiness and, uh, <laughs> you know, and uh, <laughs> no, no problems with the feedback. And so, anyway, he, he has that microphone, and, and I thought this was one of the most exotic uh, stories about the Japanese surrender that I ever heard. Uh, and I, I would you know the whole, it was a whole fascinating uh, chapter in history which you don't hear too much about. And I thought this letter uh, really caught it, you know, from what from every you know all the historic accounts that I've read and heard about. Incidentally, uh, this was for your benefit. This was several, in fact, quite a few several years before I went in the army, and I didn't understand uh, a lot of the things that the, the, the friends told me about until I later went in the army. And had a little uh, uh, experience, experiences similar to that, but of course not at all parallel. But uh, this, uh, this is a fascinating time, uh, and and the history of that time. We, people just simply don't even talk much about it, you know. I I wonder how long it took for America to begin to recognize that, say, the surrender at Appomattox really was a historical moment. Now, now you know they. They talk about it at all times. They, there's all kinds of things said about it. I think it'll probably take us another 20 years to realize that August uh, of 1945 was a true historical moment. As a matter of fact, there are historians now today who believe that the entire direction of the world and the tenor of the world changed 
in August of 1945. You know, this was the beginning of what we call the atomic age and all that. In other words, the modern era of really big problems <laughs> began in that period. But here's a picture of this guy standing here holding up a kamikaze uh, uh, flag. He's holding it at the camera. And the picture is, curious enough, the picture is, uh, is 30 years old. It has to be. And it looks like it was taken about 15 minutes ago. It's superb. Uh, uh, the paper's beautiful, and he must have taken care of it. But I wonder where those flags are now. I'll tell you where one of them is. Uh, there's a car dealer up in the Bronx. One day I walked in there, and hanging on his wall, all nicely uh, framed, was a kamikaze, or actually a Japanese flag, which his company of Marines had liberated on Guadalcanal. It's still hanging up there. Wild. Uh, this is uh, WOR New York, of course. In Conversation is next. <laughs>